Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the abundant God, that you are the one who comes to give life and life in abundance, that you are not the one who comes to steal, kill and destroy but you're the one that comes to undo that, to restore that, to reform that uh, in, in major and creative and imaginative and beautiful ways, Heavenly Father. So Holy Spirit, come, just um, awaken our spirits uh, that we may see you, that we may hear you, that we may uh, feel you and be inspired by you and be driven by you and be drawn by you, um, that we could walk in your ways, that we could be like you, that we would be called restorers, That we'd be called oaks of righteousness, that we'd be um, pillars in the, in the community, that we'd be examples, that we'd be um, so full of your life that it overflows into everybody around us. Thank you for your grace that this doesn't occur because of how good we are, because of all the things we have done or haven't done, but it just occurs because of your grace, because that's who you are. You are abundant. You are love. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so today we're starting a new series, new-ish series, I guess, because it's still following on from this whole idea of abundance uh, that we started a couple of months ago. And today we're going to start talking about the economy of God, the economy of God, which sounds, um, well, to me, it sounds a little bit onerous, economy, economics, one of these things. But what I want to do is I just want to lay a platform for uh, kind of the next uh, couple of weeks. So I think um, Steve and Pete are going to be sharing uh, some thoughts as well. So I'm going to just give some basics to sketch this out and I will be tapping into some of the ideas that I shared weeks ago. I forget, so if you've forgotten, um, I will be offended, um, but that's okay. Right, so economy then. This is a scary word that we hear a lot about these days. Um, you have that guy with the brown suitcase that comes out of number 10 down the street and says things about the economy. Um, most of the time it sounds... Uh, like he's putting a spin on something that's not particularly great. But literally the word economy uh, comes from the two sort of root words oikos, which means household, um, and nomos, uh, which is... uh, We, in the New Testament, they kind of translate it law a lot of the times, the nomos, uh, but actually it's to do with management, authority, rules, and arrangement of things, and order of things. So you see that kind of whole semantic... uh, cluster of words all kind of interrelate so you have laws authorities rules management so you think that's how society is arranged isn't it so economy is literally the rules of the house or household management and and philosophically it comes back from from the kind of greeks and the romans of how literally they would organize their household so some some rich uh we'd call them lords but you know how they'd arrange their households so how you know um you know, the, the person in charge of the household would have the family, and then they'd have the staff and the slaves and all of their roles within society and how all these households interrelate and how they all form a bigger society. Uh, so economy is literally just household management. Um, she wants the iPad, doesn't she? It's all right. Um, 
So it's all about household management. And economy, even uh, when we talk about modern economics, is all to do with the production, distribution, and utilisation of things necessary for life. So production, distribution, utilisation or consumption of things necessary for life. That's what economy is all about. Whether you talk about God's economy or the world's economy, a Western capitalist economy, a communist dictatorship economy, any sort of arrangement of things is always to do with the production, distribution and utilisation of things necessary for life. And so, if you will, it's an arrangement, an interrelation of rules, uh, processes, how you ascribe value to things, it's relationships between different things, uh, and the assumptions that underpin that. So, when we go to the shops and purchase something like bread, there are a whole bunch of things that are at play. So, for, you know, one of the things is that somebody's produced this bread, and so how they price that bread is reflective on how much it costs that person to produce. But it's not just the fiscal cost, it's also the cost of their time and the impact on their livelihood because the person has to earn a wage which doesn't just pay for the things that are used to make the bread, but it pays for the things they maintain everything with. And so there's a whole network of things. And like you go into the shops, you have some money from somewhere which doesn't just pay for bread, it goes to household bills and utilities. And you know you pay taxes. And so there's a whole network there's a whole arrangement of systems that all collide in an economy so first of all i want to start off with a little bit of a warning because we we do this a lot as christians uh, when we read the bible we take metaphors so economy the economy of god is a metaphor for how we're going to describe the kingdom it isn't the kingdom it's a metaphor for how we describe it. But what we do is we take metaphors and we totalise them. We make them uh, very hard. And this is it. This is, you know, beyond this metaphor, there is no other explanation. And the problem with this is that economics, as we understand it in 2018, we understand economics within a very Western capitalist mindset. And that's not just how we interrelate with money, because this is the problem. When we talk about economics, oftentimes we think about the value of money. But actually, economics is the household management. It's everything, all the systems that go into that. And we can, we can, we can totalise this metaphor. And, and so the problems that comes with this is there are a lot of modern assumptions that get read back into the text. For example, you think, you know, well, you know, I, I don't read in pounds when they talk about denarii into the text or anything like that. But the way we consider... Um, the text. So some of the, these are these are modern anachronisms that we've read back into the text based on metaphors that are present. So justice. When we think of justice in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we think that God is either pretty harsh or you know pretty brutal. Or if we're kind of extreme, we'll think, oh, that's okay, that's acceptable. But the problem is, is we are reading modern justice ideas, which is a retributive system. I.e., if you do something wrong, you get punished. So justice is always, don't do wrong, don't be punished. So we read the idea of retribution into the text. Um, when we talk about ransom, the word ransom, we think of modern, we probably think of a Mel Gibson film, about ransom. You know, somebody's got something, I have to pay them for something. And we'll read that into the text. Or debt, the way debt works. Well, I'll pay it off over time, we'll do it in instalments, they'll take, you know, some sort of, 
a percentage on top over time or something, we'll think about how we work our mortgage. When we talk about um, satisfaction in the terms of uh, fiscal satisfaction or, or, or forensic satisfaction, we also think about you know appeasing. Uh, that's kind of a, a bit of a medieval idea. Uh, we have like these forensic and legal readings of what atonement is. Um, and when we talk about kingdom, and this is something uh, that probably, this is probably one of the anachronisms that we really struggle with. When we, when we talk about kingdom, we think of kings, as in monarchs, like we've had in England. We think of how we expand the kingdom in terms of colonialism, and domination, and coercion, and empire building. That's how we think of kingdom. So, typically, when we've talked about kingdom, I'm, I'm using the, the, the generic we for Christendom, not us as a church. Um... When we talk about expanding kingdom, we talk about dominating an area. Well, you know, that could be a good dominating, if you can have good domination. But it's like, we'll go and overwhelm an area with something. Whether that's our presence, our kindness, our love, um, you you know, whatever, our money. You know, we'll run into a poor neighbourhood and dominate that area with with, uh, financial donations or something. But we have this idea... and. And like I said a few weeks ago about means and ends, the way you carry out something kind of impacts on what ends you have. And so when we're talking about God's economy, I want us to just be aware that we're just talking about a metaphor, okay? It'll break down if you push it. So the first thing we need to know is God's economy is not of this world. He talks about his kingdom. I'm going to kind of, economy and kingdom are going to be interrelated terms for me at this time. Um, Is not of this world. So... If you want to turn with me to John 18. So this is Jesus talking to Pontius Pilate. And it's a really interesting dialogue. And very philosophical. Um, And it's verse 36. So Pilate's saying to Jesus, you know, well look, the, the leadership of the Jews have handed you over to me. What am I going to do with you? Um, so, so Sam from verse 33 Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him are you the king of the Jews um, and Jesus says is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me and then Pilate retorts am I a Jew your own people and chief of priests handed you over to me what is it that you've actually done Jesus said my kingdom is not of this world okay and the world the word world it's cosmos. Okay, so when we talk about world, oftentimes we'll think of Earth, the globe, the sphere, you know, third rock from the sun and all that. But when it talks about world, it's cosmos. So that, you know, you'll have heard John Master Giovanni talk about this. And it just means the arrangement of things. It's just an arrangement of things. And it's not, um, you know, well, I'll put the chair here and the table over there. It's the arrangement of how the, all the systems interrelate, Okay. So you see why I'm into interchanging kind of words for economy uh, in and out. And get this. So Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this arrangement, not of these systems that you are operating in. Okay, Pilate being a representative of the Roman system. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so note that Jesus is saying... My kingdom is not from this arrangement, because if it were, my, my followers would do the things that this arrangement dictates they should do. They would be violent, they would be coercive, they would struggle to overthrow one power to reinstate another power. But Jesus is saying, look, mine 
is completely transcendent. It's not another one competing alongside your one. It's not like um, communism butting up against democracy. Okay, it's transcendent of both. You can be a Christian communist. You can be a Christian in a democracy. You can be a Christian Labour supporter. You can be a Christian conservative. Because Jesus' kingdom isn't of the political kingdoms of this world. It's transcendent of those things. Some of those things may be more agreeable, but at the end they will always fail. Because all of the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of this Christ. So first of all, God's economy is not of this system. Therefore, it cannot be related or pinned down or totalised within the means of this system. That means we cannot simply talk about God's economy in terms of pounds and pence and and the justice of this system or the politics of this system. Are you left or are you right? Are you blue or are you red? You know, I don't know what the Americans want. One's an elephant, isn't it? And one's a... The GOP, they've got got animal symbols as well. Jesus' system isn't relatable in those terms. It isn't confined to those terms. It's always transcendent. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, therefore my followers will not do the things that followers in this world will do. The way the kingdom comes is absolutely other. Okay, And that's, that's essential to get that. It's not competing. It's not an, you know, you can't, you can't say, you're either a conservative or you're a Christian. You're either a, a communist or you're a Christian. It transcends both of those things. So God's economy is not of the system. And note the context of the violence and coercion. Okay, So Jesus is identifying something that's inherent in your system, Pilate, is violence and coercion. My system is not at all like that. My system is from somewhere other than that. So he's putting a massive distance between the two. <clears throat> so what is God's economy then? God's economy you know, is based on who God is. Pilate says to Jesus, oh, you are a king then, because Jesus talks about kingdom. A kingdom has a king. Not a king like we understand king, because the kingdom is not of this world, so the king is not of this world. But a king, the way the king is, his character is reflected in his kingdom. This is true for God's kingdom as much as any other kingdom. It's based on who he is. So God's economy is based on who he is, which is love. It's an economy with a disposition of abundance indiscriminate self-giving abundance that all may have life always against death so economy is about the production distribution and deployment of goods pertaining to life and livelihood god's kingdom is based on love it's abundant it's indiscriminate and it's always given that everyone in the household may have life and flourish in that life that's the basis of the kingdom, and I'm now making statements now, but I will back it up. And it's life over and against death. It's not life in isolation. I'm just going to have my life over here, not worry about the bad things going on in the world. It is life against death. It's life bursting through death. So now it's the themes that are coming back from Lent and everything. It's always life against death. It's always creation out of the nothingness. It's always creating a people that were once not a people. It's always resurrection. It's always in the place of death, life bursts forth. Salvation, our salvation, is the rescue and deliverance out of one economy, out of one kingdom, into the kingdom of God. Where we learn 
a different economy, where we become immersed in a different economy. We are currently immersed in one economy, but we are slowly and gradually being transformed by being immersed in a completely transcendent kingdom, in a completely transcendent economy. We start to see that there are actually different ways that things can be arranged. So all our life, we are, we are inculcated with how this system is arranged. This is how you earn money. This is how you do a life. So in the West, especially with, with our kind of particular brand of British Stoicism and the American dream, we work hard, we get what we worked for, we make a success of ourselves. If you have not made a success of yourself, it's because you have not worked hard enough. I am a winner. My friends are winners. You are losers. I cannot relate to you because some of your loserishness might taint my winnerness. So you guys stay over there and I'm going to stay in here and I'm going to surround myself with people who will make me better, who will make me a winner. But as we immerse ourselves in the kingdom, we have things like, but the first should be last. If you want to become the leader, you'll be the servant of all. And it's a completely different way. And so God's kingdom, we're exposed to a different way that things can be arranged, that don't have violence in, that don't have coercion or exploitation in, that don't have exclusion. That there is a different way that we can arrange life, that everybody can have some. It's a reforming way, it's a reformation, based on a different set of rules and assumptions. The rules and assumptions of God's kingdom is that there's always enough. That it's not risk, well it is risky, to be self-giving. But that's not the end. God's household is everything in creation. It's not limited to a particular group of people, which we might uh, struggle with when we talk about Israel. But the whole point of Israel was that all creation might be blessed. And it's not just all people. It's all of creation. And this becomes important uh, a little bit later on. God's economy is based on the assumption of abundance. But all the world's economies are based on the assumption of scarcity. The assumption of scarcity is that there is not enough to go around. There is a limit, there is a limit to things, there's a finite amount of stuff, and there's simply not enough to go around that everybody can flourish. Okay, so that means that we have to make some hard decisions, because if there's not enough to go around that everyone can flourish, then I better make sure that I've got some that me and mine can flourish. But conversely, if I have some that me and mine can flourish, that means somebody else or somewhere else can't have some because there's only so much. It's a zero-sum system. And on the face of it, this seems to make sense, right? Because there is only so much natural resource in the world. There is only so much oil that we can dredge out of the world. There is only so much metal that we can mine. There is only so much gold that can prop up the economies of the world. So, so scarcity is a good assumption, right? But that's based on the idea that the way we organise things is not under scrutiny. Because you say, there is only so much oil, right? So what are we going to do? Well, the assumptions that we've got there is that what we're doing with the oil is okay. There would be enough oil if some people didn't have too much. For example, 
the last statistics well, I read on this for quite a few years ago, but America utilizes 80% of the world's oil. But America also sits on 40% of the reserves, which it does not l let out into the national markets. So that's why there's so much trouble in the Middle East, because the Middle East has the available oil that gets ramped up in price. Or we could talk about, well, let's not talk about diamonds. Um, but the assumption is, is that the way we utilize things is not under scrutiny when we talk about scarcity. But it is, because we start talking about renewable resources or, or better utilization of things then there should be enough. There's enough food, but a lot of it is accumulated in one place. So the problem with scarcity is, is that it means that people are accumulating too much in one place, that there's not enough in another place. But actually, if we address the basic assumptions of how we utilize things, so remember, economy is not just about the production, distribution, but the utilization. So if we, because scarcity is all about the production of stuff, but if we start talking about how it's distributed and how it's utilized, Actually, there is enough, but these two things are off. So our stewardship of things is under scrutiny when we start talking about abundance. <coughs> there would be enough stuff to go around if it was properly nurtured and properly developed rather than assuming that my ownership of something means that I can do with it what I want. Because the thing is, is that on the basis of that, we have not taken into account the household that includes all of creation. Because if we ensured that creation flourished, as well as ourselves, then there would be enough. So you see how the world's economy of scarcity has flipped everything around, and it means that everything is exploitable for the benefit of a few. But the problem is, is everybody on this planet falls into that few. Because I will always be doing to get mine, for my own. And therefore, I'm buying into the system that this country deploys so that I can have my own, so that I can live in equality with those around me. And I'm constantly climbing up the ladder so the ones around me become more rarefied. And so my demands upon the system become more and more exclusive. Whereas God's system says, if you look after everything, if you ensure that everything flourishes, if you ensure that creation flourishes, the stewards it, so we're getting back to echoes of Genesis, then there would be enough to go around. Because God's idea is there is abundance. Now let's talk about what we mean by abundance. Because the problem is, is we might think abundance is just having piles of stuff. Well, you know, like the top 1% who earn 83% of the world's wealth, they have abundance. That is the ideal of what we're going for. I want to be one of those people with billions and billions of pounds that I can just invest and not do anything with because it will just earn money. We think that is abundance because they've got more than enough, right? And we'll import that idea into the Bible because it'll be pressed down, shaken together and overflowing. You know, the Lord, he makes my cup overfloweth, which actually means my bank account overfloweth. That is not what abundance is. Abundance in God's economy, because remember, God's economy is the whole household of creation, is not excess, is not wasteful or arbitrary. It can be lavish. Okay, now this is important because sometimes we get into this really austere sort of Christianity where it's like, well, I, 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 that's, a, that's a bit extravagant, isn't it? But the problem is, is there's a deliberate story in the New Testament that, that completely takes that away. There's the lady with the perfume, the alabaster jar. And what does she do with this perfume? 
pours it over Jesus' feet. And this is how we know Jesus is really taking a swipe at this idea. Because deli- somebody comes along to Jesus, Judas, and says, <laughs> What are you doing? That could have been sold for the poor. You know? You know, his halo was really glowing then. Because that's what we think, don't we? We think, yeah. we think in that way. Well, we can't just be lavish. But the problem is, is again, the assumptions underneath that are all wrong. Because Judas is assuming a fiscal responsibility about the perfume. Okay, so fiscally, that is wasteful. Because it is worth a certain amount of money, and that certain amount of money could be deployed elsewhere. But within an assumption of abundance, within an assumption of self-giving love, then there's always enough. It's worshipful, it's poured out. There's a lavishness to it because, yes, they could have sold it, but it wasn't theirs to sell. It was this lady's to sell. And what did she choose to do with it? She chose to honour God with it. Because it's poured out in abundance. She has impoverished herself for the sake of Jesus, which is self-giving. So under a fiscal assumption, then yeah, wasteful. Under a whole myriad of other assumptions, then it's abundant. And so what I want you to get from that is that we can never narrow economics or the kingdom down to pure matters of pounds and pence. There are other things that are at play. There are other systems that are feeding into that system because it's all about the whole household, the production or creation of of things, the distribution of it that pertain to life and flourishing. She is flourishing because she poured it out on Jesus based on a whole different set of assumptions other than money. Abundance isn't the excess or waste or just having too much. It ensures that all things, so not just me, can flourish in life always. Because if we think, well, my bank account is pressed down, shaken and overflowing, then that might mean that I flourish always. That might mean that my family flourishes always. That might mean that my friends and hangers-on and my cronies might flourish always. But it certainly doesn't mean that all things, all, all places, will always flourish. Unless I do some very creative things with that money. Abundance is not meant to be hoarded or accumulated selfishly or stockpiled. Okay, but it's always meant to be gifted and shared and deployed lovingly to ensure flourishing for all. Okay, and now I'm going to go on to quite a heavy bit of scripture in a minute to just kind of dis- uh, um, demonstrate this. But when you start hoarding it to yourself, you start having to do things to protect it, to ensure that it is nurtured and grows and stewards. And that, that's where violence and coercion start coming in. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Abundance is fundamentally about self-giving. What I have been given is for me to give away. That doesn't mean um, that we've been given a trampoline. So that doesn't mean that I've been given the trampoline, so freely I've been given. You know, freely I've received, so freely I give, so I give the trampoline away. Right, but what it means is that somebody's imparted a heart of self-giving, therefore somehow in me that should trigger something saying well people will be generous to me 
Therefore, how then shall I live in the light of that? So guys, you've given us a trampoline, right? But that's, you've given us a physical object of a trampoline, but you've also given us a heart to give. And I think Pete is going to come on to talk about heart issues in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> so abundance is fundamentally about self-giving love because that's the God we follow. His economy is all predicated on self-giving love because that's the God we have. God is abundant. He created abundantly. He, he created out of love and he came physically out of love that creation may have life in abundance. So he says in John 10.10, 10, I remember Susie speaking on this way back in the, the blue building, John 10.10, 10, come that you may have life and life abundantly. And then Romans 8 talks about the creation waits and groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, the whole of creation is under travail because when the sons of God appear, then there'll be a new heaven. It's not a brand new one as in we're going to be beamed off to another planet, but this whole planet will be reformed by people actively stewarding in a responsible manner as dictated in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis. Scarcity is the assumption that there's not enough. I must use things now, so the utilisation of things, I must use them before they run out. I must accumulate and defend what I have because somebody else is going to want to take my bit. If there's only so much, I have to protect my bit because somebody else might take it for their bit. Then if you've ever played the game Risk. Or Monopoly. <laughs> um, so I must use it, I must accumulate it, I must defend it. Somebody must miss out that I can have some. Certain parts of creation can be sacrificed that I may have some. So... Countries in Africa can be sacrificed for their lithium deposits so that I may have my iPad. I must have what is mine now. The future can be sacrificed for the sake of me having mine now. Exploitation, coercion, violence, anxiety and selfishness and fear. These things are all present and acceptable costs for me to have mine now. When I talk about the future, you know, I'm going to become an eco-warrior by the sounds of it, but the fact that we're polluting our planet now, that we can have uh, two or three cars and we can have our uh, flights to luxurious locations and all of that, well, it's okay. I can have mine now and it doesn't really matter what happens in 25 years' time. But the problem is God's economy is all about everything flourishing all of the time. And so you see how all of these things become acceptable. Exploitation, uh, violence, um, exclusion become all acceptable within the context of scarcity. But you see how Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world and therefore violence is not a method of his kingdom. And so I'm going to talk about bread. That was all a preamble so I can talk about bread. And that's a very deliberate image of uh, really watered down wine. With no alcohol called Ribena and bread. Food is a wonderful image of economy. All civilizations always have an image of food as, as, a, as the health of the economy. How food is produced, how people relate to it, how it's distributed, what's done with it, what do we do with it when we finish with it, how do we uh, accumulate it? All of the interrelated systems that go into that. Production, distribution and utilisation of it. 
And bread particularly is a potent image. Not just in the Bible, but throughout um, all civilizations. Bread is always synonymous with life and livelihood. You know, we talk, in, we talk in terms of our salary, in terms of bread or dough. Maybe not in 2018, but you know, like <laughs> rappers in the 90s did. Um, and, and food, again, like so salary comes from the word salt. Earning your salt. Because people were paid in salt. But bread, particularly, is a really potent image. So, the word that we have in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, for food, most of the time, is the word lechem. So, get your best Hebrew voice on and say lechem. <laughs> so, it's about, like, sounds like you're going to spit. Lechem. But actually, that's the word for food. The word for food is actually the word for bread. Lechem is bread. So, when you have Bethlehem, Bet is the word for house. Lechem is bread, house of bread. So when there's a famine in Ruth, in Bethlehem, there's no house in the house of bread. Where did Jesus come from? Bethlehem. And Jesus is the bread of life. And another interesting little thing, I'm not, I haven't researched this one fully, but have you ever been to like any sort of Jewish uh, festival or party? And when they do, you know, like their version of cheers, Lechem, which means to life. So there's a little bit of a, a pun in there, lechem lechem, bread of life. So when they talk about life and bread, you see how the two ideas are interrelated. <coughs> so bread is a rich image. There are so many things, like, so we sat down at the pre-show meeting on Wednesday and kind of, I just sort of outlined what I was going to do and then from all corners of the room, there's like a thousand of the, are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about that? It's like, well, I could do if you guys prefer to wait for three hours. I noticed that Lizzie's not here. <laughs> and she was one of the main culprits. Um, so, I'm not going to talk about when Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. Okay? Or the whole thing in Deuteronomy, where that comes from. Um, but you can see the connection again between life and bread. Um, I'm going to leave alone yeast. Thank you very much, Jeremy. I'm going to leave alone all of those images, but again, it ties in nicely with this idea of different systems and economies and influence and abundance. And there are numerous other ideas. So Abraham's hospitality to the three strangers, he bakes bread. Um, Elijah and the miraculous provision of, you know, before, you know, just make me a cake of bread. Again, word there is bread. Before your stuff runs out. And then she has a miraculous provision and she flourishes where the man of God is. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about those, even though I just did a little bit. So turn with me to Genesis 47. And I'm deliberately going to just dwell on these texts. There's two texts I'm going to read, and then we're going to move into communion. Uh, So Genesis 47. And I'm reading from a Jewish study Bible, uh, mainly because it says bread rather than food. (laughs) Um, It was the only translation I found on my shelf that actually said bread rather than food. Um, so your NIVs or whatever might say food, but it is actually bread. So from verse 13. <clears throat> now, there was no bread in all of the world, for the famine was very severe. Both the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all of the money that was to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the rations that were being procured. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's place. We're going to probably hit a little bit of cognitive dissonance with this one because we love Joseph. Joseph's a good guy. Um, he's a hero. Uh, but notice what's happening with the money. We said that abundance doesn't accumulate. Where's all the money going? 
to one place under under Joseph's very shrewd stewardship. Uh, so all of the uh, Joseph brought all of the money into Pharaoh's palace. Now Pharaoh is an archetype of uh, the world system. Okay, Pharaoh is just one of those things. It's one of those images that's used throughout the Bible uh, as the, as a metaphor for the world system. And when all the money gave out in the land of Egypt and then in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "Give us bread, lest we die before your very eyes, for the money is gone." And Joseph said, "Bring your livestock, and I'll sell it to you, and I'll sell to you against your livestock if the money is gone." So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange, the word exchange, for horses, for the stocks of sheep and cattle, for the asses. Weird. Thus he provided them with bread that year in exchange for their livestock. So notice how bread is being deployed in this context. So bread is being used as leverage to take everything from everybody. So remember, God's economy is about everybody flourishing all the time. Pharaoh's economy... The ability to have life is only in exchange for everything that pertains to your life. And when that year was ended, they came to him again the next year and said, We cannot hide from my Lord that with all the money and animal stocks consigned to my Lord, so somebody has everything. Which is Joseph and Pharaoh. Nothing is left at my Lord's disposal, save our, our persons and our farmland. Let us not perish in your eyes, both we and our land, take us and our land in exchange for the bread. And we, with our land, will be serfs to Pharaoh's slaves. And provide the seed that we, may not, that we may live and not die. And the land may not become a waste. So notice that there is a famine. But there is enough bread. The bread is just being held back. Until people will sell themselves into slavery to get it. And that was, by the way, down to Joseph's shrewd administration in the seven abundant years by stockpiling everything, so there would be enough. So Joseph gained possession of all of the farmland in Egypt for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian, having sold his field because of the famine, was too much for them. Thus the land passed over to Pharaoh, and he removed the population town by town. He is taking the land off the people and taking the people away from their communities in exchange for bread for you to live you must live under my totalizing rule he's moving people on so think about um, oil companies bulldozing Native American lands to run pipes through and he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other Only the land of the priests did he not take over, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh had made to them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Whereas I have this day acquired you and your land for Pharaoh, here is now seed for you to sow the land. And when the harvest comes, you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall you use as your seed for food for you and all your households, as nourishment for you and your children. And then they said, you have saved our lives. They do not question the system of distribution. The fact that they have been reduced to slaves. They are taught by the system to be thankful for it. To maintain the status quo. 
They are so immersed in it. And this immersion comes up in a bit as well. You have saved our lives. We are grateful to my Lord and we shall be slaves to Pharaoh. And Joseph made it into a land law in Egypt, which is still valid, that a fifth should be Pharaoh's only. And the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the country of Egypt in the region of Goshen. Notice this. They acquired holdings in it and were fertile and increased greatly. (coughs) Even under the system of Pharaoh, which has reduced the Egyptians to slavery, God's people are flourishing. Even within the contrary systems, God's people will flourish. So there's a hint of God's economy still nestled in the worst possible places, right? So it's always about life over and against death. And so this is God's economy about to burst forth over and against the death of the Pharaoh system. Okay, so that last verse, verse 27. Pharaoh is constantly anxious because enough is never enough. We see that Pharaoh, even though he has everything, and it's not just he has a lot, he has actually everything. He has all of the wealth, he has all of the bread, which is the the playing card that, that means that everybody is at his beck and call. He has all of their livestock, He has all of the land and he has all of them. That is totalising. He has everything. But he is still anxious. How do we know this? Because when we get into Exodus, he is scared that a minor people in a backwater place in Goshen, which is the rubbish land, because that's where they keep the shepherds and Egyptians don't like shepherds. If you read Genesis, that comes. Are flourishing. Somehow they are flourishing in the really rubbish part of town. They're flourishing. And Pharaoh is anxious, even though he has an overwhelming population, an overwhelming amount of finance, an overwhelming amount of land, an overwhelming amount of resource, he's still scared. The scarcity system breeds anxiety. And out of that anxiety, it breeds violence. What do the Egyptians then do to Israel? They say, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they overwhelm us by their numbers. Let us make them into slaves. So the Egyptians are slaves. Let's make everybody else just like us. Lest they get away from the system we're in. Lest they rumble the status quo. Let's just, like the Borg, assimilate everybody into this way of being. And now let's see God's economy at work. So we all know the story. God delivers Israel out of that. Okay, but it's a beautiful, beautiful transition because it really is these these two kind of monolithic archetypes of the world's economy versus God's economy. So turn me now to Exodus 16. So they're into the wilderness. Setting out from Elam, the whole Israelite community came into the wilderness of Sin, which is a very weird name, uh, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, in the wilderness, again, so notice the stress on they are in the wilderness. If anyone's fuzzy, they are in the wilderness, and the wilderness is where there's nothing. The whole of the Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the flesh parts, where we ate our fill of bread. See how the Egyptians, when they were immersed in the system, they decided, Thank you, Pharaoh, for making us slaves. 
Now the Israelites, who had beaten down as slaves, suddenly think in the middle of the wilderness, we had these pots of loads of overflowing meat and we had loads of bread. See how immersion in the system is just a completely totalising experience. Um, so why have you brought us out into this wilderness to starve the whole congregation to death? And then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread on you from the sky and the people should go out and gather each day what is their portion. Notice that. That I may thus test them to see whether they will follow my instructions or not. But on the sixth day, when, when they apportion what they have brought in, it shall prove to be double the amount as they gather each day. So Moses and Aaron said to all of the Israelites, By evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall behold the presence of the Lord, because he has heard your grumblings. For who are we that you should grumble against us? Since it was the Lord, said Moses, who will give you flesh to eat in the evening and bread in the mornings to the full. Again, notice the abundant language. Because the Lord has heard your grumblings, you uttered against him. What is your part? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Um, and moving, uh, just skipping down. Uh, so verse 13. In the evening quail appeared and covered the camp. In the morning there was a fall of dew about the camp. When the fall of dew lifted, they were over the surface of the wilderness. So in spite of nothing, in the place of death, there was an abundance of a fine flaky substance, which was not dandruff, or frost on the ground. When these words saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they didn't know what it was called. And Moses said to them, That is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. That is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much as, of it as each of you require to eat. And omer to a person for as many as you are, though each of you fetch for those in his tent. So Israel did so, some gathering much, some gathering little. But when they measured it, no one had any excess. Notice this. And he who had gathered little had no deficiency, and they who had gathered as much as they needed to eat. Moses said to them, let no one leave any over till the morning. But they paid no attention to Moses, of course. Some of them left it until morning, and it became infested with maggots and stank. Moses was angry with them. So... Notice how in the system of of God, first of all, equality doesn't mean the same. Some gathered little, but they were flourishing. Some gathered a lot, and they flourished. Equality doesn't mean that everybody gets the same. It means that everybody has enough to flourish. Notice also, there is no way that they can stockpile this or amass it in a way that they can use it as a playing card over and against somebody else. It rots. There is no accumulation of this stuff. There is no stockpiling it in one place that one person may have the, the kind of unlimited reign over everybody else. Notice that everybody gets them. Everybody flourishes. Not just the good people, not just the priests who flourished in Egypt, but the ones who are grumbling and complaining were fed. Everybody is included. Notice also that it doesn't come on the Sabbath because the flourishing of people is connected to living in the ways of God. So by reinstating the Sabbath, God is connecting them to their creation mandate. Okay, so there's a whole realignment. It's not just about them having food in their bellies. It's a whole realignment to a different economy. Because the problem is, is if Israel had just walked out of Egypt and walked up the coast and settled, what would they have produced? What would the kingdom of God have looked like? It would have looked just like Egypt. They spent 40 years in the world, you know, that whole thing. It took, uh, God got them out of Egypt overnight, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. 
Notice all of these things at play. There is no accumulation, there is no exploitation. Everybody's included, and it's realigning with a different way. Because in Egypt, seven days a week, they were making bricks. Their whole world was bricks. In God's economy, don't even go and collect stuff. On the seventh day, there'll be enough from the sixth day, don't worry. But there'll be just enough. Abundance. Everybody flourishing, always. They don't have to worry about tomorrow. Because it's gift. It's always gift. It's always this gift of God. God's economy and the basics of life, bread, cannot be deployed to gain political power or to exploit people. In Pharaoh's economy, there was enough bread to go around because they had stockpiled it for seven years to ensure that there was enough to go around. But it was used as a playing chip. It was sealed off. You can only have this bread if you give yourselves totally and utterly to Pharaoh. In God's economy, have bread. Whether you grumble against me or not, whether you're against me or for me, have bread. Jesus, in the wilderness, and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, the temptation to make bread. Why? Because when you give people bread, they make you king. That was a messianic belief. Jesus refused that temptation in the wilderness. How do we know this is true? Because when it comes to feeding the 5,000 in John 6, it says, when he had fed them, the people wanted to make him king, and Jesus wandered off. He wasn't interested in coercing political leverage by providing bread. The basics of life are for everybody, always, everywhere. Not just for a few, and it's never on a condition. Life is available and life is abundant. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. It is always available, no matter who. The kingdom of God's economy is abundant, it's inclusive, it's self-giving, it's never coercive or exploitative. I'm going to wind up now. So Matthew 10... Uh, Matthew 10 verse 5 so this is Jesus sending out the 12 disciples these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions do not go amongst the Gentiles or enter any of the town of the Samaritans go rather to the lost sheep of Israel as you go proclaim the message the kingdom of heaven has come near heal those who are ill raise the dead cleanse those who have leprosy drive out the demons freely you give Freely you receive, therefore freely give. As Jesus did, the, the, the medium is the message. The way the message comes is synonymous with the message itself. Jesus came to announce God's kingdom by emptying his life out for everybody else. How are the disciples supposed to go out? By emptying themselves out for everybody else. They announce the kingdom is here. How do you know the kingdom is here? Because kingdom things happen when the kingdom is here. What kingdom things happen? The sick are healed. Demons are cast out. People are cleansed. So the outcasts are brought in. And the attitude of that, the disposition of that, is that I have received a gift. Therefore I'm going to give of that gift. You see, the funny thing about gift is that it never runs out. It's that whole idea of pay it forwards. It never runs out. It never stops. Whereas something that's exchanged is exploited 
and it's consumed it's gone it becomes a commodity the gift never runs out you know the trampoline might eventually break under wear and tear but the thing you've actually sowed into our lives will never run out if we steward it properly if we allow it to flourish it's all based on generous gift so in the light of this then how then shall we live will we live by hoarding anxiously protecting defending exploiting so that we may get ours or will we give generously believing that there's always enough for tomorrow i'm not going to touch on it because i think that's coming next week in matthew 6 the kingdom announcement is accompanied by a demonstration of the kingdom heart there's healing restoration and a generosity there's an abundance God's economy is indiscriminate. Now, I've, I've, I love this text, and I've probably shared it about three or four times now. Um, but just quickly into the end of Matthew 5. You've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. How do we identify as children in our Father in heaven? Because we operate in a different way. Yeah. We don't operate within the status quo of the economy that we've been told to operate in. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the sun to rise indiscriminately and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's all gift. If you love those who love you, what reward is it? What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what you do more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be ye perfect. And in the context, it should be be ye indiscriminate, even as your heavenly Father is indiscriminate. Be ye abundant, even as your heavenly Father is abundant. Be ye inclusive, even as your heavenly Father is inclusive. God is abundant and indiscriminate with his provision for life and flourishing for everybody. The rain falls indiscriminately. The sun shines indiscriminately. The bread is given indiscriminately. Seed is scattered indiscriminately. The Saviour's body is given indiscriminately. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. God's economy is gift, abundant, indiscriminate gift, given in love that we may have life and life abundantly. And not just life for ourselves, but that all things everywhere, all the time, may have life and flourishing. The word for blessing in the Beatitudes actually is better translated flourishing. Flourishing are you. And so let us move to a wonderful image of bread and life and flourishing and indiscrimination inclusivity, healing, reformation, transformation, the body of Christ broken for us and his blood poured out indiscriminately for us. Eucharist literally means the good gift. This is God's good gift for the entire world. The only way, and I know I used to stress about this, the only way that you can partake of this in an unworthy manner as it says in Corinthians, is if you do it exclusively, not inclusively. The problem with the Corinthians is, is the rich were excluding the poor and still bringing in, well, I'm a rich guy, so I get to eat the best and I get to eat first. You are poor and therefore you do not. And that's what Paul rebukes them for. So the body of Christ, freely broken, freely given as an offering for us to live and flourish in life in abundance. There may be a few bits <laughs> that are abundantly scattered. <laughs> and the blood of Christ poured out for you. So please come, uh, share with someone, take a bit for yourself, take a bit for somebody else. Um, and I am done. Amen. That's Thanks, Sarah.